As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. Today, we go back to February 2015, where New Testament scholar, author and speaker Paula Gooder joined Justin Brierley to tackle a range of questions submitted by the listeners. The Old Covenant, eyewitness testimony, how the Gospels were written, and much more is covered in today's replay. Well, Paula Gooder is a leading New Testament scholar. She's canon theologian at Birmingham Cathedral, resident theologian for the Bible Society and a much sought after speaker and author. In fact, I got to know her a bit at last year's Spring Harvest Conference when she and I were both speaking in the same week. Well, we're both there again this year, uh, though I'm speaking in week three and uh, Paula's in week one. Uh, at the Minehead site, Um, but uh, she's going to be there uh, leading the Bible teaching again at Minehead Week 1 of Spring Harvest. You want to find out more about Spring Harvest and the uh, deals on offer. Uh, If you haven't yet got uh, your thoughts together for what you're going to be doing over the Easter period, uh, then do go to springharvest.org. But uh, in advance of today's programme, because we had Paula here, uh, I I thought, well, why don't we just pick Paula's brains on a whole range of issues uh, to do with the New Testament and so I asked you to send in your thoughts via Twitter, Facebook and email uh, your questions for Paula and we received lots many more unfortunately that I'm sure we'll get time to uh, to address in the course of today's program but we're going to put lots of your questions to Paula on the program today. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on the programme with me today, Paula. And um, we're going to be doing, as I've said, uh, something much more sort of a little bit different, at least to usual. We've got a whole load of questions that I've had come in by Facebook, Twitter and email. Um, All kinds of things that I'm going to be throwing at you this afternoon for you to to have a go (laughs) at uh, at answering. Uh, But before that, let's get a bit of uh, background to yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, You you are obviously um, a theologian. um, You're a Bible scholar. Uh, did did kind of the Bible, did, did that light up for you early on in terms of your interest in it, uh, pursuing it academically? Well, I did theology at Oxford and my tutor was Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. And um, in terms of academic study, mm. that it, that was the moment where my fires were lit. I mean, it's <laughs> almost impossible to be in a room with Tom Wright and not get excited about the New Testament. And uh, I had wonderful three years um, being tutored by him, which was amazing. This is sound very patronising, but I, I I referred to you the other day as as the female Tom Wright. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or I said maybe I should call Tom the female the male Paul Gooder, but um, evidently his his way of looking at scripture mm-hmm. has had a big influence on you. Enormous. I mean, I mean yes. give us a sense of of what it is about the way he has approached the New Testament that has kind of rubbed off on you. Well. I must just say, before I do that, um, one of the things I often find really dis- disappointing is I have these great ideas and I'm completely convinced <laughs> I came up with them all by myself. And then I read Tom's next book and go, oh, oh God, that's another it. one. <laughs> um, I think where I was absolutely inspired by how um, he reads is actually really just down to a fundamental um, issue is that often in New Testament studies, what people do are the pre-questions. Mm. So they say, well, when was it written? Who wrote it? Where was it written? What, you know, let's do a little mm. bit about mm. how it was put together. Um, and actually, once they've done all of that, they go, oh, well, that's done now. Lovely. Yeah. But what Tom does is he goes in and says, and now what does it mean? Mm. What difference does it make? Mm. And the bit that really kind of grips me about why, how he does theology is he really cares what what he means and what difference it makes mm. to us, and that for me is the whole difference between dry and dull New Testament scholarship sure. and really exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, w- one of the things I know that 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 Tom Wright has really done, I think, is awaken a new sense of the the you know the the kind of um, 
afterlife and and the kingdom come that that, that was in Jesus's mind mm. and Paul's mind, w- whereas we've kind of supplanted it with a slightly ethereal um, heaven is another place, yes. a spiritual mm. realm. Uh, and he's brought us back to, no, we're talking about a renewed earth, um, a, a something quite physical, yes. interestingly. Mm. And this is an area you've kind of been interested in as well in terms of looking at heaven and what heaven is and, and that kind of thing Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, yes, that's right. Mm. What, what's your perspective on this? What, what, what do you think we've lost some, somehow in the Western church about the reality of of the, the, the kingdom that, that is actually painted in the New Testament? Well, I think what we've done, and, um, and you can see how we got there because it's, it's influenced by um, later Christian tradition, um, which was kind of overlaid by all sorts of different forms of Greek philosophy. But what we've done is we've done a kind of a classic split that says um, things about God are spiritual, things about earth are physical. Mm. God is good, therefore earth is bad. Mm. Um, and physical things are bad. And it has had an enormous impact on all sorts of ways in which we think about the world, about mm. ourselves, about our bodies. Um, and one of the things, I, I wrote a book um, on heaven, mm. and one of the things I was trying to argue in that is that actually within the biblical texts, heaven is a place, just like earth is a place, and heaven is designed to be created right next to earth. So heaven is a place like earth is, mm. only also not like earth is, because it's where God's rule of justice and peace um, is perfect, whereas what we are trying to do is bring about God's rule of justice and peace on earth. So it's kind of, we've made the wrong distinction mm. between spiritual and physical, whereas the right distinction is between the place where God absolutely reigns and the place where he doesn't reign enough yet. We, I'll make sure there's a link from today's website, uh, from the show, uh, to your page where people can find mm. out more if they want to pursue some of these issues. Um, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable for the links to Paula today. Um, but as we're, go- we're going to give time to, to answer a whole range of different yeah. questions. We'll, we'll throw them all at you today, <laughs> Paula. Um, but before we get to that, when we were setting this up, this show, um, and, and to think about the format and everything, mm-hmm. one thing that you were quite keen on was the way we do this kind of, uh, you know, looking into theological yes. issues. You weren't so keen on a kind of combative, my view versus your view, and let's have, you know, a big old you know, yeah, clashing debate yes. on it because that's you say you found that not to be the best way of really generating fruit in the end no absolutely and it's one of my great passions actually um, a friend of mine calls theology a contact sport <laughs> <laughs> which um i think is an absolutely great description of it and so often what we end up doing is is kind of doing theology like we do rugby really yes. is that um i'll take you out yeah and once i've taken you out i've demonstrated that none of your ideas in any context are any good whatsoever <laughs> whereas actually um the thing about theology is we're talking about god mm. and god is beyond any of our you know get the cleverest person you know mm. in the room and it's mm. beyond that person to understand god and actually what we ought to be doing is rather than saying i'm right and you're wrong is saying well actually let's put all of our brains together mm. with everything that we've got um, and see what truth we can learn out of that and and for me one of my great passions is actually studying theology um as dialogue as conversation sure. um Because the other thing, and maybe it just reveals my inadequacies, is that there are some things about which I am absolutely clear and sure and certain, Mm. like the virgin birth, the Mm. resurrection. um, Mm. Those things are absolute pillars of my life. There's a whole load of other things where I go, I'm not entirely sure Mm. yet. Mm. Um, There's this and then there's that. And actually what is really important to me is the journey, not the, the answer. Yeah, yeah. So you're not necessarily don't have to have every single uh, I dotted and T crossed to you're you're happy with a, a certain amount of I'm still learning absolutely uh, uh, and and be. a God that I could understand absolutely clearly without any trouble whatsoever wouldn't really be a God <laughs> that I would want to believe in. <laughs> Well, look, let's go to some questions. And um, if you, by the way, you um, missed your chance to ask a question, you can at least send in your thoughts on what Paula has to say today. Uh, you can email me, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Uh, you can also, of course, find us online, uh, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Leave a comment under today's programme there. Or indeed, uh, Facebook and Twitter at unbelievablejb, facebook.com slash unbelievable jb to leave some thoughts for me there but a lot of people got in touch ahead of today's show with their questions we won't have time for all of them of course but um we've we've had a really good interesting uh, variety of stuff and uh, quite a few people actually interested in asking um particularly uh you know as a scholar of the new testament how much um the the jewish law and rituals Mm. 
were were sort of changed um, what happened in terms of the new, if you like, uh, dispensation or whatever you call it that, that Christ brought in that sense. I'll, I'll give you a long one and then a short one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was, first of all, uh, Ben in Tennessee who said, uh, so go back to Genesis 12 and 22 and there's the covenant there that God makes with Abraham. Uh, Genesis 17 mentions specific things about the covenant that are everlasting. For instance, the covenant itself, uh, the land being an everlasting possession uh, and the sign of the covenant, a.k.a. circumcision. Mm. Uh, But Paul and the apostles come along in the New Testament, Acts 15, other places, and say that circumcision is no longer necessary. Now, this seems like a hard thing for Christians to reconcile. I don't know if we can say, as some do, that they're just signposts, shadows pointing to the reality found in Christ, because the Bible seems to say earlier on that they are everlasting. And uh, Ben asks, I wonder if Dr. Gooder has any light to shed on the matter. I must confess I sympathise with first century Jews. If a rabbi came along and said that circumcision is no longer necessary when the Torah says it's an everlasting part of the covenant, and that if you don't get circumcised, you'll be cut off from God's people. I don't suppose I would have listened to Paul either, (laughs) says says Ben. Um, So maybe start with Ben and then we'll we'll go to some more of the questions around this. Great. Well, I absolutely agree with him. Um, And actually, one of the really important things to do is to recognise actually what's going on in the New Testament. Um, And over and over again, Paul says, is there anything wrong with the law? No. Um, Should the law be abolished? No. Um, what am I trying to say? I'm not saying that there's anything kind of fundamentally wrong with Judaism. I paraphrase, you mm, understand. Sure. Um, and actually what we need to understand is there's a double dynamic going on in Paul's writings, um, which unless you understand it, it does become really confusing, mm. Mm. which is that there is one thing that Paul is saying to Jews mm-hmm. and there is another thing that Paul is saying to Gentiles. Okay. So what is really important is if you are Jewish, um, of course you must be circumcised and of course you must follow the law. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you better than Gentiles who don't. Okay. And if we kind of take a step back and kind of understand the first century context, the context in which all of this discussion emerges um, is in the context of what do Gentiles have to do in order to become a follower of Christ? Mm. That's the question mm. of Paul. That was the big thing that in their, their day, big, wasn't big, it? Yeah, yeah. their big question. Yeah. Um, not what do Jews have to do mm-hmm. because Jesus was Jewish. You know, it's quite obvious what Jews have to do. Yeah. They carry on being Jewish and worship Christ. That's straightforward. But entirely obviously and for reasons that we can all see the assumption of the Jerusalem church um, led by people like James and then also by people like Peter um, was that if you wanted to follow Christ you must become Jewish first and then follow Christ Christ, and Paul's point was no you don't Mm. the whole point is that in Christ um, the full covenant is available for you there is a Mm. new way of um, engaging now new way a new constitution of the people of Mm. God Um, So if you were a member of the people of God already, there's one set of rules. And if you weren't a member of the people of God already, then there are different expectations of you. So I'd say to Ben, actually, nothing's changed. Okay, And in that sense, is that covenant made with the specific Jewish people still a covenant that stands as far as you can see? From the Old Testament. I would say that that's what Romans 9 to 11 is all about. Yeah. Is that, you know, there will come a time when the established covenant of the people of God um, will be gathered in to the rest of the people the newly constituted people of God. Mm, mm. Um, they, do, they don't have to stop being Jewish any more than we have to start being Jewish. Um, the recognition is that we are all one in Christ Jesus, you know, familiar phrase yeah, from yeah. Paul. Um, but that doesn't mean that you stop being Jewish or stop being Gentile okay. in order to be gathered and, and be one in Christ Jesus. Another question that, that turns around this issue of, of the level of observance um, that the, the new Christians were had had to have. Um, Helen asks, my question is, with the birth of the early church, what level of Torah observance, if any, did the Jewish disciples of Jesus maintain? I wonder if you've got any mm. thoughts on that one. Um, vast amounts. <laughs> <laughs> How much time have we got? Yeah, right. um, in that, again, they were, they were being faithful Jews mm. and um, faithful Jews who worshipped Christ. And the two were really important. And so therefore, you know, and, and you will encounter through the New Testament in Acts and in various bits of 1 Corinthians questions about the niceties of it. You know, should you eat food offered to idols mm. um, is, is a kind of nicety of a question of what do you do um, mm. in a Jewish and a Gentile context in which this kind of thing goes on. And so therefore, I would say that actually um, it is highly likely that... Um, most of the first century Jews did in fact practice 
the vast majority of Torah commands on them. Mm. Um, the bit where Paul, where it all becomes a lot more challenging, mm. and I think it's the bit that um, the consequences of what Paul said kind of were lived out and people began to re- realise how complicated it was, is that, is purity. Mm. I said, in order within the Judaism of the first century to remain pure, one of the key things that you didn't do was eat with Gentiles. Okay. If therefore, you know, and, and mm. if, you, if you remember Acts 15, that's kind of one of the crucial kind of nubs of the argument in Acts 15. Um, and so then the question is, should first century Jews um, put their purity in danger mm. because of what it was that they, um, because they were eating with Gentiles? Um and that's where it became a lot more complicated. But apart from that, I would say most first century Jews would have gone to synagogue on yeah. a Saturday yeah. and then to table fellowship with fellow Christians on a Sunday. Would would the destruction of the temple have made a significant difference in the way the early Christians would have, in AD 70, have, have expressed, if they were of Jewish background, their, their devotion? I think that would have been one of the crucial moments where everything begins to change. Mm. One of the things we can notice from first century Judaism until 70 is that actually there seems to be um, quite a wide variety of different ways of being Jewish. You know, you mm. could be a Jew of um, an Essene variety or a Jew of a mm. Pharisaic mm. variety, Jew of a Sadducean variety. Um, you had some slightly bonkers wandering prophets <laughs> like Banus in the desert. Um, but they were all somehow held together by the temple worship. Mm. Um, once the temple went, then actually what you end up with much later on is one dominant form of Judaism, sure. which was rabbinic Judaism, which probably grew out of Pharisaic Judaism. And it's at that point when it became almost impossible to be a different kind of right. Jew that's for obvious and really good yeah. reasons. Yeah. But that's that's sure. how it got, got to that stage. Um, it, of course, raises questions about the persecution of mm. um, no doubt listeners are going. Mm. But what about the person persecution of Christians in the first century? That is an issue which yeah. is kind of interesting yeah, and, and, and related uh, speaking of, of ad 70 one one of the um questions that's come in uh, uh sort of similar question two different people um derek asks what date would paula give for the earliest gospel i assume mm-hmm. this will be yes. taken to be mark and how much consensus or disagreement is there in academia on that and in a similar manner dustin uh, savage on twitter asked the question is the, is, is the position that the New Testament was written before 70 AD defensible at all or something along those lines, he says. So, so it's, <laughs> yes. it's questions around how, how early were, were, were the Gospels yeah. put down um, and, and, you know, does AD 70 feel like a date before which we can at least assume Mark was being written? What about the rest of the New mm. Testament? How, how early was that? Any, any thoughts on that? Oh, loads. Um, it's, again, a really complex area. Yeah. But um, one of the really interesting things, I think, about kind of the development of the Gospels is that um, by the time we got to the end of the 20th century, kind of start of the 21st century, there was a rough consensus, and it's very rough, and mm. there are people who disagreed, um, which basically said that the Gospels um, emerged... Um, some people would say as early as 67, but not much earlier than 67. Some people kind of more in 72, mm. that kind of area. And that Mark was written first. Following on from Mark, um, you've got Matthew and Luke being mm. written. Mm. Some people think there was this um, putative source um, known as Q. Q. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Q what lies behind Mark. And then Matthew had Mark and Q and... Luke had Mark and Q, yeah. um, and there's big a lot of discussions about precisely how it emerged, and that was a rough consensus for quite a long time, and the assumption was that um, there were the events of Jesus's life. Then people talked about the events of Jesus's life, and um, slowly over time they became something known as oral sources. Mm. They were kind of passed along in oral sources, and then as over time as time went on, these became began to be written down and if people want to identify Q then they would identify Q as the earliest written source and then you have the gospel writers who effectively then become much more gospel editors Mm. in that they have written sources and they begin to shape Shape them. them That's the kind of consensus. Mm. But then Richard Borkham wrote a book called Jesus and the Eye the Gospels and the Jesus and the Eye Eye Witnesses. I had him on this show Ah, to talk about it. Um, Which I think is a spectacular book. Mm. And not least it blows some of that consensus out of the water. Okay. Now it's not all that old 
in terms of New Testament scholarship and actually how it's all going to settle down mm. is really not clear. But what's fascinating about his book is his argument that eyewitness accounts probably do lie behind the gospel texts mm. um, and possibly even actual eyewitness accounts so, right. that, so that Mark is written out of an actual eyewitness mm. account and maybe Matthew and maybe mm. Luke as well, which kind of rather kind of blows all of that <laughs> consensus out of the water. It's interesting. I, I mean, but, but in terms of whether it was eyewitness or, or whatever, yeah. the, the actual writing down, um, do, you, do you think, do you, are you a kind of an early Mark kind of person right. in, in as much as, you know, some people go as early as 40 or 50 yeah. AD, others say no, it would have been in the latter part of the well, first you know, century? I have a problem with the question, which okay. is a really interesting one, is we assume we're, we're kind of functioning on modern understandings mm. of a book. Mm. You know, so when did I write my book, Heaven? Yes, you turn yes. to the copyright page <laughs> and you see what date I wrote my book, Heaven, on. And you attribute it to that year. Yes. I know that I didn't write that book in 2011. <laughs> it was being written in my head and yes. on my computer and in yeah. various different forms for probably about six or seven years before that. Mm. Extrapolate that out to the Gospels. Mm. Um, and I think asking when was it written is probably the wrong question. Okay. What we're probably asking was, at what point did people stop writing it? Yes. Did they step away and let it alone and say, <laughs> we're not doing any more on that? <laughs> And that may well be kind yeah. of the 70 date. Sure. But I think it's highly unlikely that there weren't snippets and odd bits and maybe even a gospel that would look a little bit like the gospel we've got from Mark that comes from quite early. This is a really important story. You're not going to risk it sure. dying out. So, yeah. so yeah. when do I think it started to be written mm. and when do you think I... When do I think it finished being written are two entirely different questions. Yeah. And I would give it 30, 40 years. And incidentally, John's gospel, I think, is a really interesting example of a gospel that's written over time. And you can see it written yeah, over time. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, two other questions that came in sort of, I think, mm. would be would be appropriate at this point, talking about how the gospels were written down and that kind of thing. Because Tom Tozer also asked this issue of eyewitness testimony, um, says, what is the consensus view of the gospels as containing eyewitness testimony? Mm. Now, you've already said yeah. Richard Borg. Yes. Has sort of put mm-hmm. his uh, hat into the ring. Um, but what's your view? Is is there a consensus about eyewitness testimony at this point? Not or is really, this kind of a, new, no. a bit of a new area? No, it's, it's a new area. And some people have seized up his ideas with great enthusiasm and other people have um, rejected them out of hand. Right. So, um, so there's no consensus, there's no consensus at all, as, as no. such on mm. this, but, but it's worth looking at. In a related question, Paula, um, both... Simon Turner and Steve Pond both ask similar sorts of questions, so I'll give them both. Um, Simon asks, does Paula think that the words of Jesus recorded in the Bible are perfectly accurate, or are they paraphrases? Mm. And if they're not the exact words, why do we spend so much time and emphasis on the precise word Mm. used? And Steve asks a a similar sort of question. He says, is it fair to say that an incident like the Sermon on the Mount never happened, but rather a literary device to present the teachings of Jesus that he most likely gave in many different locations? Um, uh, Do you think in the Gospels there are other events used in the same way to represent a teaching he gave on other occasions across the country? Many thanks. So so this is questions about, you know, when the Gospels were written down and the teachings of Jesus were included, were, were, is, is it, can we say that, yes, these were definitely the words he used? Are they paraphrases? Have they kind of been all put together at certain points, mm-hmm. like the Sermon on the Mount, to kind of give an overall flavour of the teachings he gave, though he may not have said all of those things in one place on a mountainside? What, what's going on mm. here, Paula? Well, the paraphrase question, um, the obvious answer to that is, of course, they're not his original words because he wasn't speaking Greek. Right. Sure. <laughs> so by definition. So, yeah. By yes. definition, they are not his accurate words because yes. um, we assume for no and, and there is nothing to suggest otherwise that Jesus spoke Aramaic like all yeah. Jews of the first century did. Um, and so therefore, someone has attempted. And by the time they turned into English, we're even further yeah, away from, from, the, exactly. from the original Aramaic. No, but, and, yeah. and when people say, you know, well. Yeah. What do you think about the original text? Well, the kind of the sad truth of the Gospels is we haven't got the original sure. text. Yeah. Um, and we don't even know if it was written down in Aramaic first. There are mm. some people who have tried to back translate Mark right. into Aramaic. Um, not wildly convincingly, okay. uh, in my view. Mm. Um, so actually, no, we don't have Jesus's absolute words. But what I would say, well, let me just say something about inspiration at that mm. point, because I think okay. it's quite an important one. Often we 
we have a kind of very narrow view of inspiration that says, well, Jesus was inspired because he was the son of God. Mm. And if Mark, for example, were absolutely accurately copying down what Jesus said, then he would be copying down the inspired words of God. Okay. Um, otherwise, it's not inspired. Okay. And I want to go... That's far too narrow an understanding of inspiration. This okay. is what I believe, what many of us believe, to be God's living, breathing word speaking to us. You don't really think that God would just be hanging around <laughs> in 67 or 72 at one point. You're going, inspired now, <laughs> now not inspired. This is a long inspired text. Okay. So therefore, I would say God was involved in the remembering of the stories and the translating them of into mm -hmm. Greek, into the writing them down, into scribes copying them. And dare I even say maybe in our English translations, it doesn't right. mean that every <laughs> single word in an English translation is true. Yeah. But equally, you know, true as in um, couldn't have been better, couldn't mm -hmm. have been improved mm -hmm. on. But equally... Um, surely God would be involved in the inspiration okay. of all of it. So yeah. I think, are that, they accurate words of Jesus? No, because he wasn't speaking, because he was speaking Aramaic. But actually, was God involved in the communication mm, of what mm. we hear? Absolutely. Yeah. And therefore, pouring over the Greek word is therefore really important. Okay. Uh, and in that sense, then, yes, inevitably, it's a, it's a paraphrase of Jesus because yes. it's a different language it was written down in from what he was speaking. Mm. I mean, it, it, when it comes to the, 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 the way it's presented, though, as Steve asks, yes. you know, you get something like the Sermon on the Mount yeah. with a kind of whole yeah. bunch of teaching all in a row. Mm. You know, are we to assume that 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 did happen? You know, Jesus mm. was there teaching to a crowd or the disciples, I think, yes. actually, mm. and, and giving all of that information in one go. And it was therefore all written down by Matthew. Or, or, or can we assume that Matthew was kind of maybe taking a, a lot of different stuff he said and saying, I'm going to put this all into one mm. sermon, as it were, because... I, I can't remember exactly sure. everything yeah. he said on every mm. single occasion. Well, so many things to say on that yeah. subject. Which is, it's a fascinating one. <laughs> I think the first thing I would want to say is I don't think it was a sermon because it has to be the worst sermon in history. <laughs> you know, Where's your three points? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it's got no structure. It's got no stories. Yeah. And, and the one thing we know about Jesus is he is a stonkingly good communicator. Mm. Um, and have you ever sat and tried to listen to the whole of the Sermon on the Mount? It doesn't flow. No. It's kind of it goes all over the place. It has no structure, no narrative, no nothing mm. that we know about what Jesus did in terms of um, teaching. Sure. So first thing I'd like to say. The second thing I'd like to say is that um, if we go with John's gospel, then we assume that Jesus's ministry was three years long. Mm -hmm. um, John's the one who suggests it to us, but we haven't got another um, suggestion. So let's go with three years long. Just imagine how much teaching Jesus did in three years. Mm. And you realise that actually what we've got in front of us are the tiniest, tiniest snippets mm. of his teaching. And um, and I think it's highly likely that Jesus said things more than once. Mm -hmm. um, if it's really important, he's going yeah. to say it yeah. five, six, seven, times. As any good preacher times, does. Absolutely. Every preacher's right. probably preached their best sermon 20 yeah, times. that's right, precisely. <laughs> so if he, if he wants different groups to hear it, he sure. will have said it. Mm. And so therefore, for me, the Sermon on the Mount is a, here's all the really important stuff. We mustn't lose mm. all the important stuff. Let's make sure we put that together. But I don't think that that's how Jesus communicated because there are two things that are a marker for me about Jesus's communication. One of them is stories. Mm. Um, and normally what you discover is this teaching comes at the end of a story. Um, often in Mark's gospel, you see it where yeah. he'll tell a parable and then you'll have a big piece of teaching, okay. even if it's only three verses long, yeah. you know, right yeah. at the end of it. And the second thing is that he asks questions. Jesus's primary teaching manner is asking questions. Mm, mm. Um, and the odd thing about the Sermon on the Mount is there's not a question to be found no, or mm. almost not a question to yeah. be found. Um, and therefore, I think actually what it's doing is saying, let's gather all together the really important stuff so we don't lose it. But then you discover how Jesus taught in other places, which I would say is through yeah. stories and with questions. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Paul. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more questions. Uh, we've only got a smattering them through, through a smattering them so far. I'll have to do a few more rapid fire ones okay. in the next round. Yes but, or no answers. <laughs> uh, Paula Gooder, my guest today on Unbelievable. She's going to be uh, at uh, Minehead in sp for Spring Harvest uh, in April. And uh, you can find out more about that from links from today's programme as well. Uh, so uh, we'll be continuing to grill Paula with a few more questions that you've sent in over the last week or two here on the show that aims to get you thinking this Saturday afternoon, unbelievable. 
before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Okay, uh, let's throw another question at you then, Paula. Um, uh, how about this one? Um, we've um, been talking about in the last section how Jesus' words were written down. But, but what about the way they depict his life? Brian asks uh, this question. Do you believe the Gospels depict an accurate account of Jesus' life? But if so, why do they conflict so much, especially in the simple crucifixion narrative? What day? What time? Earthquake? Final words? Etc. Um, OK, so do you want to lay out maybe what the problem is and, and then what, if you think there is a resolution? Um the crucifixion is a fascinating um, text, really, um, kind of account of Jesus's life, because, um, as Brian so rightly says in his question, there are it is almost impossible to squish, squish them together in such a way as that they make sense as a single narrative. So, for example, in John's Gospel, Jesus is crucified the day earlier than he is apparently in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, there is an earthquake as Jesus dies, which is not reported in any one of the other Gospels. Um, those are the two examples. There's, mm. there's all sorts of other um, details that are different as well. Um, the, the wording that's used um, at various different points differs. I mean, you just can't kind of run them together. And it raises for us the really interesting question um, of... How do you get to the historical basis of what's going on? Mm, mm. And I think the first thing I'd like to do is kind of to push back a little bit and say um, it is remarkable how much there is in common, even though there are, there are some details that are different. Mm. Um, so, you know, you do have in all of the accounts um, that Jesus was crucified by the Romans, that he um, was um, had thieves on either side of him yeah. or robbers or whatever yeah. word you want to use at that particular point. Um, you have the fact that he was offered wine either once or twice while he was on the cross. Um, you have um, the tearing of the temple veil in, most, in the Synoptic Gospels. You have kind of key bits that are in, in all of them. And um, so the first thing I'd want to say is that you have a base tradition that agrees, even okay. though there are details that, mm. that are different. And for me, that's one of the really important things to mm -hmm. recognise is that um, it's true also, incidentally, of the birth narratives, where yes. people throw up their hands in yeah. horror and say, look at all these differences. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Okay. You know, he was born in Bethlehem. Yeah. His parents were called yeah. Mary and Joseph. Yeah. He had visitors. Um, you know, the, all, the rest. Yeah, all that sure. kind of stuff, which is a base tradition. Mm. So the difference is not the base tradition, it's the details. Yeah. Um, and that's when you get into interesting questions about the nature of historicity. Mm. Um, and I think I would want to say is, say today there was a car crash mm. and you pulled five witnesses off the street on the very same day and you mm. said to them, tell us what colour the car was that passed before the crash happened mm. tell us who was on the other side of the street tell us exactly what time it was mm. and tell mm. us you know whose fault the crash was yeah. police generally say that you'll get five different answers sure. the sure. details are always mm. different mm. in even in eyewitnesses account in yeah. witness accounts um, and i think that gives you a clue into why we've got the differences in jesus's um, crucifixion the base stuff is the same the important yeah. stuff mm -hmm. is the same mm. but it's the details that are different yeah i, I mean I, I suppose you know a lot of people at that point then say but don't christians claim that this is the perfect word of god and therefore there should be no inconsistencies um uh, whatsoever between mm. these different accounts well i mean what what do you say to that kind of a view of of whether this should be in that sense, quote unquote, inerrant, and therefore all the details should perfectly line up. Well, I um, 
probably should reveal that I believe in infallibility rather than inerrancy. Mm. Um, we, in the more popular understanding of infallibility, which is that it is to be relied on. It is abso- The Bible is mm. absolutely trustworthy, mm. um, but not that it is absolutely accurate in every detail right. for precisely the reasons that we've just brought up, which is that it's almost impossible to decide what day of the week Jesus was crucified on right. from, the, from the text. And I don't mm. think personally I can't support inerrancy for that reason. But I do want to say that it's infallible, that actually the Bible is absolutely trustworthy for everything that I need to know about salvation. And that tells you what is really important about what the Bible does is it reveals to us the living, breathing word of God that helps us to understand who God is, that understands the nature of Christ and also gives us everything that we need to understand for the nature of salvation. Which leads nicely into Andrew's question, Mm. where he says, Should we think twice about saying the Bible is the first and last word in all matters of history, science and ethics? And he also follows that up with, and should its authority and influence be limited to spiritual matters? (laughs) So so, so are we supposed to read the Bible, if you like, as a sort of having an authority in all matters, historical, scientific, ethical and so on? Or should we kind of, you know hive off spiritual matters is what right. what we take the Bible as authoritative about. Let, let me answer the second one first okay. and then get on to the first mm. bit. Um, absolutely not. Okay. Um, because I don't think the Bible is solely about spiritual matters. And mm. um, back to part of a conversation we've had earlier um, mm. today is that actually that that is our fundamental problem as Christians where we've said the spiritual stuff that mm-hmm. God is involved in and then there's the rest of the stuff that God yes. is not involved in. God is the creator of the whole universe. Um, And therefore, there is nothing that God is not involved in. The whole point about the Bible, and one of the reasons we find the Bible difficult from time to time, is because it is a story which is a political story. It's Mm. a historical story. It it kind of dabbles in all sorts of stuff. There is no such thing as just a spiritual bit of the Bible. Um, It's about the physical world, so it can't Mm. be just spiritual. And so therefore, I would say it's not just a spiritual book. Mm. Um, Should it have authority? That's a really interesting question. It depends what you mean by it. Um, If you mean that um, the Bible is so absolutely and utterly right on our interpretation about what it means, (laughs) that anyone who comes along and says something different is absolutely wrong, well, I think that's where we've hit problems in the past Mm. in people's engagement with the Bible. The classic one being the creation narrative in Genesis 1. Mm. We say the world is created like this. Scientists say we don't agree. Um, So Christians say, well, you're wrong then. Mm. Um, I think what a lot of modern Christians would say is that actually the Bible does have something very powerful to say, but we need to recognise it's not a 21st century scientific textbook, nor is it a 21st century political textbook Mm. or any of the other kind of textbooks. It has an authority in that it speaks with authority into a situation. Mm. That doesn't mean that you have, therefore, to read um, everything off what we're saying. Sure. I can't quite get my words out, but you see what I, I mean? What it's mean. kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 trying to, it's, it's allowing the Bible to be what it is and not yeah. forcing it to be what it's not. Okay. And what it is, is the. I've used my phrase a number of times, I'll use it again the living, breathing yeah. word of God. It's that inspired. Reveals, in that it's inspired sense. and it reveals things of God to us as mm. we read it. Mm. But not necessarily the exact scientific way in which the world was created no, that's uh, and right. so on. Mm. Um, I, I mean, You'll have to explain this one to me because another one came in and I'm not even sure I know what the the, the question means. Um, but this was by Twitter, Reddish CF. How important is it to study the sits im leben of a text <laughs> rather than just the text itself? So if you could first of all translate sits im leben. Sits im leben is a German phrase yes. um, which um, means setting in life. Okay. So basically, um, that, that kind of goes back to one of the principles of the historical critical method in mm. New Testament and um, Old Testament studies, which is the argument by a lot of scholars that actually what you need to do is understand what the text meant originally sure. um, in order to be able to understand what it means. Okay. And, and then you kind of set up a really interesting conversation, and mm. this is where I'm mm. in, into the interesting mm. conversation, mm is that there are some historical critical scholars who would say the only thing that a text can mean is what the author originally intended it to mean when they first wrote it. So the only thing that um, Romans can mean, for example, is what 
Paul meant Romans to mean okay. when he wrote it in the mm. first century. But I, in contrast to that is the very popular and still rightly practiced um, way of reading the Bible where you open it and see what God says to you, right. which has nothing to do with its original context. <laughs> it's actually God speaking directly into sure. my life. And often they're set up as kind of opposite poles. Mm, mm. Um, and the problem, of course, is um, that actually what a Bible text means for us today can get us into some difficulties if we don't understand something about the historical sure. context. And quite frankly, there are some biblical texts where you look at it and go, I have no idea. <laughs> no, it's not speaking into my life because I haven't the foggiest what it's talking about. Because I don't know who's a rubber ball was and why he's yeah, exactly. relevant to my life today. Precisely, yeah. that's right. You know, and, and so actually neither of those methods <laughs> is good on their own. Sure. And so what I am interested in is actually bringing those two into conversation with each other. Of mm. course, the Spirit speaks to us when we read the Bible, but maybe the Spirit might speak even more clearly and more vibrantly if we understood a little bit more about the historical context that made Paul say what it is that he said yeah. in Romans. I mean, I sometimes hear it said, for instance, um, some people get a bit sniffy about some Christians, you know, have, you know, favourite verses, life yeah, verses, yeah. let's say, uh, the, the one from Jeremiah about, I know the plans yeah, I have absolutely. for you, yeah, plans for a mm. future and hope and so on. Mm. And they say, well, that, that was written to, you know, Jews in the diaspora, in the, mm. you know, um, in, you know, the exile or the whatever, exile. Yeah, that's right, yes. um, to their situation. What, what are you doing sort of saying, mm. oh, that was written for me yeah. and isn't it lovely? Uh, what's your kind of view on that? Can we kind of take stuff that's evidently has a historical mm. setting in which it was written and say, no, that's for me, actually? Mm. I mean, what? Is this the kind of the the, the thing of it? It speaks to them and it speaks to us by the spirit today. Is well, that what's yeah, going I mean, I, for me, one of the really important things to recognise about the biblical understanding of history is that for us, history is a straight line. You know, it started at creation, it'll end at the end of all times, and we're kind of moving along the straight line from one end to the other, um, never to return. Whereas what you get from the Bible is an understanding of history which is much more. Cir circular mm. and but it, it goes forward but it's much more like a spiral than okay. it is like a kind of a straight line uh -huh. um, and kind of that recognition that God acts again and again and again and the reason why the New Testament writers read the Old Testament stories and why they bring them into their narratives so often is because they believed that the God who was the God of the Exodus is still the same God mm. So if God is going to free his people once, he's going to do it again. Yeah. The God of um, wilderness wanderings is the same God. Mm. So if you want to know who God is, you look at what he did. Mm. And so therefore, um, that's the both andness. Mm. You need to know that Jeremiah was written to a people in exile mm. because it helps you understand why that was an important thing to say to them at that point. And then we say, and that God hasn't changed. We believe that that God who knew the plans for the people of the exile mm. is still the same. God who knows the plans that he has for us. Yeah. So yes it was true for them and yes it was true for us and incidentally was true for thousands of people in between them and us as well. So recognising the circular yeah. element of it, not just kind of the straight line bit. Brilliant stuff. Let's um, take, take a quick break just to mention if you're listening and you'd like to respond to anything that Paul has had to say today, you're more than welcome to drop me a line. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Uh, be fascinated to hear what you think about some of the issues we've covered. And we've covered off a lot already. Uh, you're doing brilliantly, Paula, uh, with all these, <laughs> these questions we're throwing at you. I've got a few more before our time's up uh, that we'll try and fit in. Um, uh, if you want to listen back to today's show, pass it on to someone else. Um, don't forget the, e the uh, website is premierchristianradio.com com slash unbelievable uh, you can look at today's show you can comment on it underneath uh, you can find uh, more resources from paula and don't forget paula's uh, one of the bible teachers at this year's spring harvest um i'm going to be there myself but not in the same week unfortunately as paula but if, if you are uh, around for minehead week th three i think it is um i'll be leading some um seminars on the big questions some apologetic stuff uh, but that's that's across all of the weeks uh, other people leading some of the other ones as well um so uh, so do look out for that all the details at the spring harvest Harvest website. If you haven't got your plans yet together for Easter, uh, not too late to book yourself into one of the the weeks, both in Skegness and Minehead. Okay, uh, let's uh, take some more questions here on today's show. Uh, we're asking the questions of Dr. Paula Gooder, who's a Bible teacher and theologian. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. 
Okay, Paula, um, let's ask uh, at least maybe one or two more before we have to draw things to a close. Um, I've got one here. Um, uh, I've always assumed from the text that Paul and the New Testament writers, including apparently Jesus himself, clearly thought that the end of the age was coming Mm. soon. I've read various interpretations on this, but I'm not satisfied as to why the end wasn't predicted or expected accurately. The only thing I conclude is that the end was meant to come earlier, but the circumstances have interfered or frustrated the timeline. Of course, that has implications about sovereignty and open theism and all kinds of things, says Kevin in Oregon. Okay, this is a kind of familiar sort of one that that I think people do come to when they read in in Matthew and and other places Jesus appearing to talk Mm. about, you know, this generation won't pass away before... The end has come. And, and Paul seems to always live in expectation of, of an imminent uh, second coming of Jesus. So, so what do we do with this? What, what, 2,000 years later, and, and apparently Jesus still hasn't returned, what, what, where, where do you go with these texts, Paula? It's, I need to warn you in advance, this is complex theology. Okay. <laughs> so take a deep breath and be ready for this. Switch on your complex uh, switch in your brain. Um, and I think part point. of the problem is that we try and make it too straightforward and too simple. Okay. Um, when you realise that it is actually a really complex issue, mm-hmm. then in a, in a bizarre way it becomes more easier to understand. Okay. So... Um, The Jews believed that God would intervene in their world to change it forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the prophecies like Isaiah are all about that moment when God is going to intervene and the world is going to become a completely Mm. different place. And um, if you read your way through the Gospels and you realise that people are kind of following Jesus around going, I don't quite understand, Mm. because this was our expectation of how the world was going to change. And it's kind of a little bit different and it's not quite as we expected it. And you can almost feel the brain cogs kind of whirring as they're not understanding what's going on. Um, And then you need to understand that actually that fulfilment of God intervening happens through the gospel texts in a variety of different ways. So the angels at Jesus' birth sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. If you Mm. have anything that Isaiah was looking forward to, it was that God's glory would be revealed and there would be peace on earth. Mm. So the angels say at Jesus' birth, it's happened. Okay. And yet it hasn't all happened, has it? Because Mm. there's more still to come. Mm. So then you fast track onto the resurrection and you realise that one, some of the confusion of the disciples around the resurrection is that... um, In Jewish belief, the resurrection was the marker of the start of the new age. So Jesus has been raised. Well, where's the new age? Yes. Um, And then you realise that actually what the gospel writers and Paul are saying is that actually the new age is breaking in. It's already started, Mm. um, which is why Paul can talk in 2 Corinthians 5 about new creation. Um, The new age is, is among us and it's happened in a new form, in a different form. You fast track forward a little bit more and you realise that some of the prophecies that Jesus talks about in places like Mark 13 are fulfilled at 70 when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Mm. Um, And then you begin to realise that actually what we're looking for is one moment on a linear map that Mm. says this is the moment when it's going to happen. Whereas actually what God is saying is at the birth of Jesus, the world changed forever and it continues to change, particularly through the resurrection particularly when the spirit comes and also when the temple is destroyed. So there are, this is a grand narrative of mm. now and not yet. Mm. So of course they were expecting it to happen because it was imminent and actually it was happening. Mm. At the same time is the not yetness. Yes. And um, kind of part of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels and therefore also of Paul is you need to be ready for the absolute full culmination of Mm. it and in order to be ready for that you need to be able to see the many many mini moments Mm. when the new age is breaking in there are big (laughs) moments of the resurrection and there are kind of mini moments when the new age is kind of functioning and as christians we are invited to live the new creation which is the existence that we will have come the resurrection Mm. early Mm. i told you it was complicated yeah but it's inevitably i suppose but so, so in that sense what 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 do we mean by the, the second coming of Christ? Um, because do, do we believe there is still going to be this, you know, to use the fancy term, eschatological event mm-hmm. in which everyone will see and, you know, every knee will bow and, and so on in which uh, or is, is, is that kind of is it some kind of progressive event that, that happens over time? Um, I, I believe 
to pick up your your fancy <laughs> phrase the, in an eschatological event, you know, I believe that there will be a grand end moment, you know, right. the moment when it all comes to its fulfilment. And mm. I passionately believe that mm. because it makes sense of everything else. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I also believe in the fact that we need to be living now as though we are already living that moment. And when Paul's anticipating almost it would seem within his lifetime mm. this this event did he get that wrong or was it that he's that we've just slightly mis- misunderstood his his kind of emphasis there? um i think it's the i i think i don't think so <laughs> it's a difficult question mm. um and i everything in me rebels to say he was wrong right um and i think actually he was right to believe that it was imminent mm just as we remain right to believe that it's imminent because mm. it changes how you live yeah. you know to use a kind of a kind of a kind of a sideways example really is that if you know that your death is absolutely imminent you live differently mm. and i think what paul is talking about is living living as though you know that this event is on the cusp mm. um was he wrong um I'm not sure that he was, because okay. I think he was right that we should live our lives yeah. in that kind of expectation. Um, and and I don't think you can manufacture the expectation. Um, you'll see that I'm kind of... It is the imponderable, um, and I'm grappling on the hook a little bit, and I need to kind of get to the point where I think all of us theologians well, need to get to. It may say, be one of I those areas know. where you're happy to say... Yeah. There's there's grey and I'm willing to keep looking. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yes, that's right. But, but I'm unwilling to say that he was wrong. Sure. But he was clearly not entirely right sure. at the same time. It's been fascinating chatting with you and going from the, the sublime to the ridiculous, though not ridiculous because it's the everyday. Um, uh, just the last question I'll leave to Mo Baldwin, who says, <laughs> how much time do you spend on your housework and how much time reading <laughs> theology books, how much time on Facebook? So if you could just give us an exact timeline of, of what you do. Uh, well, I do need to say that I know Mo and she knows the answer to that. So she was being facetious. <laughs> um, the answer is far too much time on Facebook, far too much time reading theology and far too little time on housework in any case we've appreciated the time you have spent in theology and and the way you've been able to dispense some of that learning for us on the program today paula it's been a real pleasure having you on the program today thank Thank you you for, for coming in thank you for listening to this week's classic replay do let us know what you thought you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Premier Unbelievable or tweet us at Unbelievable FE. For more resources for exploring faith, head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com and if you register there, you'll unlock access to all the content on the website and we'll send you updates and exclusive content through the Premier Unbelievable newsletter, including bonus videos and e-books. That's premierunbelievable.com. See you next time for another classic replay of Unbelievable. <laughs>